What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. Go to PrimeLostophy.com to learn more about maximizing your aliveness. I'm so excited about today's guest, Kai Whiting. He is a Stoicism and Sustainability Lecturer and Researcher based at the University of Lisbon, Portugal. He blogs over at StoicKai.com and tweets at Kai Whiting. Enjoy. All right, Kyle. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to talking to you for some time now. So you're working at the University of Lisbon. Your background is in environmental engineering, and you recognize that without philosophy, we will never understand the why we do what we do. Can you just expand on that? Absolutely. I, I do think as an engineer that we tend to focus on the how. Like how you want your bridge to be built, you know, what what material you want and how efficiently can we build it and what is the best team. But sometimes the most efficient decision is not to make the bridge itself, right? So you ask yourself, do we really need something? And I use the example of a lot of our top engineers right now are going into like feed, inf- feed algorithms that get our kids addicted to social media in more ways than one. And I think sometimes we have to ask the question, okay, I can make a 14 year old more addicted to Instagram, but should I be doing this? Is this something of value? Mm-hmm. Now that's not for me to, to judge, right? But that is a question when I do something as an engineer that I, or I get my colleagues and my students to really think about like, what is the added value of doing that? I mean, it's just certain jobs, like you're a firefighter. So there's those jobs of like, obviously this added value in doing that. Right. Right. Uh, but you might ask the firefighter, why are we building buildings that are so tall that our tallest ladder can't reach people? You might have those kind of questions about why those buildings exist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just asking, OK, what is the added value? Not in just in terms of a financial gain, because that's an easy added value, right? It's just a dollar sign or a euro sign. But to say, do we really need it in society? Does it actively contribute to the things that we value? And then asking yourself, what is it that I value? Which is philosophy in a very broad sense, rather than specific philosophy, uh, philosophical school or way of thinking. So your main research interest is how to better account for resource use and the practical application of Stoic philosophy to these modern day challenges, right? That's correct, yes. So what exactly do you mean by resource use? Well, in terms, I, I focus a lot on so energy and materials. So uh, literally, when I'm, I'm not talking about human resources, I am literally talking about how much steel do we need to build a car? And can we be more efficient with that steel in terms of how much energy we need to create, say, that product? But then I also ask the question of, again, what is that car used for? So people tell me, well, my students tell me, and I ask them, what is the best way to solve the sustainability crisis they'll talk to me about electric cars right and actually electric cars require more mines than a normal car conventional car because they have a lithium battery so my question is coming from not how in terms of just sort of structural performance but okay what is the environmental impact of that each additional material put in that car so in the us your cars are very much bigger than we have in say uh, the uk or europe in general but it's not just the weight of the car in terms of like the amount of steel that you put in it, but also the amount of plastics, the amount of composites. So the more composites that lightweight the car, the more impact on the environmental scale. So yes, you might be reducing steel, but if you're increasing plastics, you're increasing lithium, you're increasing all sorts of other things, then you actually have a bigger or wider impact because you need more mines in different places. And every additional mine ha- has uh, negative things associated. They're also positive things. I'm not going to say that that we should never develop, but you just have to start asking yourself, do we need, say, electric cars, or do we need to move from a car ownership model to a car rental model? 
or a carpooling model. And then you start to ask questions like, okay, is Uber, say, the best way of doing that? Is that the values that we have? So then I start, I start from a very specific question like, okay, we need transport. That's what we, well, we need a way to go from A to B. Okay, we do that in the form of transport. Not many people walk these days, many, many miles. So how can it best to serve them? Or you might even start the question like in the US, why don't we build cities that we don't need cars? Because obviously part of the reasons why the urban planning in the US is the way it was is because we had an excess of oil and we needed to sell it. So we built an economy based on oil. So those are the kind of questions that I ask in my engineering uh, background. And then the value question of like, what is it that we value? Mm -hmm. What is it that we want? Because engineering doesn't tell you what you want in, in the bigger sense. So then I say, well, why do we want that? Why do we have those cities like we do in the US when we had the opportunity to really build according to a different way of thinking? We, we chose to rely on a resource, obviously it, it, not understanding that there would be particular interests that were promoted at the expense of others. Some of that was ignorance, some of it definitely wasn't. So I think if you combine the two, you have the how, the how what, why and with whom. In philosophy, you don't always have the how, so you have, well, you yourself, Nick, would be aware that sometimes you read philosophy and it's not immediately apparent what you're going to use it for. So in this podcast, what we're going to try to do, I, I imagine, is to break down the sort of the more complex details so that, the, the, you know, the, re, the listeners here can really apply it to their own lives. And I think that's, from my understanding of our previous conversation, is that's exactly what we're going to do, because sometimes philosophy doesn't come across so easily. And people say, ah, oh, philosophy, I'm not going to do anything. It's not, that's completely useless. And sometimes, you know what, people are right. The way that we are talking about it or the way that we're writing about it is completely useless. So we're going to try to address that today, I hope, at least. It's like you're using first principles. And a lot of times you don't know you're using philosophy because it's camouflaged in there in that mental model. But it also is like you're using Socratic questioning. Exactly, which is... Well, you might, you want to, you want, you might want to pick the Socratic questioning for our, uh, for our listeners, sorry. I mean, that's a really good point, but do you want to tell me more about that? I would be doing it a disservice. I imagine you could do that much better justification than myself. <laughs> that's very kind of you, Nick. Uh, the second kind of question is like you have, we basically unpick assumptions. So you would have an assumption. So people say to me, we need cars. Let's take that assumption. And then having a discussion with you going, well, actually, we don't need cars. So it looks like you, are, you and I are both opposed. We have completely different uh, opinions for the sake of argument, you say, yes, we need cars. I say, we don't need cars. And then you and I discuss why you think we need cars. So you might say, well, I need to visit my mom, right? And she lives 20 miles away. So you're telling me that if I can't have a car, I can't visit my mom because there's no public transport. So I'd say, no, what you don't need is a car. You either need your mom to live closer or you need a transport system whereby you can get to your mom's. And I might say, if I could offer you a car service where you could sleep in the back and go safely onto your mum, wouldn't you prefer that? And some people would say, no, I actually really like driving, and then we'd have a different discussion. But you might say, you know what, I really don't like driving. So yes, actually, I don't need a car, but I do need some kind of car service, right? Because most people, when I say you need a car, I say, if you could click your fingers and you could arrive at your mum's, would you prefer that? And most people say yes. I, if I could, I would just click my fingers and I wouldn't even drive. I would just arrive at my mum's house. So then you're saying, then you don't really need a car. What you need is a, is a relationship. Or what you're looking for is to maintain the relationship you have with your mum. So then we start to discuss, okay, now that we agree that your primary reason is to drive 20 miles to work or 20 miles to visit your, visit your parents, then we can have a, a more um, important discussion, okay, what we value, why do we value that relationship? And how can we build a society or how can we build a, 
a way of thinking at least that we can start to reduce our dependency on cars if we value not the driving itself and again people do but let's say in your case you didn't if you value the having that relationship with your mum how can we make it so that that can continue to flourish that can continue to happen without you needing to uh, burn a fossil fuel which contributes to environmental damage so that's the kind of that's the kind of reasoning that we'd, we'd go through it's not the only kind of reasoning but it is a very important reasoning in, in stoic uh, philosophy yeah, that's cool. I love how you brought that full circle. So how did you discover stoicism and how does it relate to your background? I don't know. We possibly discovered it the same way because I discovered it through Ryan Holiday, obstacle is the way. Okay. And a lot of people come through that. Uh, so, and that's why I think that Ryan's work is absolutely excellent. There's a lot of things I think, mm, maybe not, but one thing that's absolutely fundamental and I'm trying to copy for want of a better phrase is to make it accessible. So my grandma was dying in hospital and I happened to read his, be reading his book. And as she died, which I didn't know at that precise moment, I was reading, we have a different between perception and observation. The observation is fact, the perception is how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, chaos erupted, like literally, I, I wish I could paint a picture of, I'm not an artist, but to be able to say like literally the room erupts, like this news has come in. Everyone is in complete shock. She went in, nobody knew she was ill. She, she wasn't the person who was dying slowly. And then suddenly I had to make a decision. Do I enter that chaos? Or do I just accept, accept the fact that she's died? Which is potentially the hardest fact, not the hardest, but one of them at least, hardest facts we have to accept. That the person that we love a lot, or the most even, we won't be able to spend any more time with. Because I think it's a selfish sort of thing. I want to spend more time with her that I was really reacting to rather than her dying herself. It's a, it's a difficult distinction, but I think... It's important to make and so i had the the ability to say what do i what do i want this to mean in my life and it was literally because i was reading that book it was like that so you know when you you know everybody knows where they were in september the 11th right 9 11 i think you say in the us right 9 11. so i knew in that moment what sentence i was reading and it was crystallized and i was like look this is really working for me now i can't say that I reacted better than my family members, but I can say that I reacted better because that would be unfair. But I could say that I reacted better than I would have otherwise reacted because she was like one of the rocks in my life. And then saying, understanding the fact she died and then bringing my own meaning to it, not, not forcing it to be a loss, but to be a celebration was really helpful. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't miss her. That doesn't mean that I don't feel unfortunate, you know, sad sometimes that I can't, you know, speak to her about something that's, you know, about stoicism, for example. But it does mean that I can reflect on what do I want to do in a positive sense that I can control. So I think Obstacle of the Way really, you know, nails that. And I still say to everybody, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It has a lot of flaws in it, like all books do, but it is fantastic. I think it's excellent. And I recommend it to most people that come through stoicism. I say most because I think women have a quite difficult time with that book, particularly if if they come from some kind of minority, so LGBT or an ethnic minority of some description, or they're not American or British. It's quite a British American way of looking at the world. So it doesn't really speak as loudly to those people that don't really associate with that culture, which is one of my criticisms. But then you know, one book is not gonna be you no know, one size fits all, right? So you know, take that with a pinch of salt, but that's definitely how I, how I came to it. And then I applied thinking, applied it to my work thinking, but why is it only about me and myself and I in environmental uh, aspects as an engineer, or even as an engineering aspect, it's never about you, right? It's always about your team and how the team can build the bridge because if it's only about you and the bridge fails, people die. 
So it's all about how you can collaborate and build synergy. And I thought, well, stoicism must be the same way. And I found out it, it wasn't being applied that way, which, which, is, which was very surprising to me. And something I highlighted in Stoicon uh, 2018, which I hope you leave a link so people can watch it. Mm -hmm. And now in Stoicon 2019, I have seen that we are definitely talking more about the collective level. It doesn't mean that there's no value in personal, personal stoic practice that focuses on self-development. But I think that, well, you're a firefighter. It's never just about yourself, right? It's always about you and your team, and it's about the people you're trying to rescue. Yes, you should put yourself in a really good mental state as a firefighter, obviously. Much more important that you do that than I as a teacher in many, many events in your life. Not all of them, but in many. And then you, you work together, right, to get the best optimum result and you can't just rely on what you think is the right thing to do you have to talk about it you have to bridge that gap you really have to look at how you, how you should be concerned with what you should be concerned in that specific moment i think firefighters tell me that time slows down so and i and i think stoicism can give so much more than just that personal touch you really can say okay now you've sorted out your own mess what is it you can do to continue to sort out your own mess to make the world a better place which I think is what a firefighter does, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. That's why I came on. I thought this is a really good example of a really useful practice in a very specific um, situation that is a very difficult situation to be in. It's a great philosophy because of its practical use for firefighters. It's kind of like you were touching on earlier was the sort of dichotomy of control where we don't concern ourselves with things that are out of our control. And most of the time in the fire service and working as a first responder, most of the events that come while you're on duty are out of your control. But what's in your control is the way that you react and your response right. to them. With love and with loss of love, I was kind of in the same shoes as you. I lost my grandmother, but I hadn't come across a guiding philosophy in life yet to kind of help me manage those emotions. What do you think is the importance of having a guiding philosophy? I want to, uh, well, I think a guiding philosophy can be very, I won't, I'll say why stoicism, because if I, so let's say I had a guiding philosophy that basically was very nihilistic, right? So I'd have to put it in, in the context of stoicism. I think that having a stoic guiding philosophy as opposed to any philosophy, because you can have a philosophy that is absurd, right? But having something that, encourages you as Sturzen does to think rationally that doesn't mean you know like a British person like, I'm not going to be emotional at all I'm not going to think about emotions no to control the the intensity of one's emotions that would drive someone or yourself to behave in a certain way that wouldn't be conducive to a good mental state that's what I mean by being rational I don't mean like being cold robot here so I think looking at, at a situation so let's take a fire Right, you've been called for a fire. You, you've done all the practice. You know, you've done the hard work. You know, you've done, you've done your, your push-ups and your pull-ups and you've done your cardio. You're in your best physical state that you can be. You've been relaxed and calm and meditating when you're in that, you know, the fire truck going towards. If you're not driving, of course, going towards that fire. You visualize the kind of things that you're going to expect. Some of it will be negative, some will be positive. You've made sure for your training that you know the streets really well, that you know what kind of time, like intense traffic is gonna be down one particular street so you can get there fast. You understand that people are gonna drive crazily when they see a fire truck, right? They're not necessarily gonna drive rationally. Some people do move that way, other people, you know, don't. All those things go through your head. And I think stoicism helps you put those in, you know, sequences in that particular case. Okay, did I do everything in my power in the physical sense? Did I do my push-ups today? Did I put my pull-ups? Did I, am I in good physical state? 
you know, or have I been slacking on the diet? Because if you have, you say, well, I could have done that better, right? I could have actually been a better firefighter. Have I communicated well with my team? And you break down every single specific thing that you can control. And then what you cannot control, it stirs and encourages you to negatively visualize. And that's not so you can like whip yourself like, oh, I'm so bad that I didn't do this thing and I, I could have done this and I could have done that. No, really, what can what could go wrong? Okay, and if it goes wrong, what, how can you respond? And how can you encourage your teammates to respond in a way that is helpful when faced with escaping a fire, <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. reducing the, the expansion of a fire, or unfortunately, helping a loved one through a very difficult situation if things go really, really badly. So I think stoicism is one of the, in my opinion, and of course people can disagree, but it's one of the few philosophies that I'm aware of that can really break down step by step by step. Because in stoicism, the only thing that matters is what you can control, right? And how you deal with those things that you can't control, because that is in your control. But not to the point that, okay, I'm not gonna care about my teammate because they're, you know, what they do is their concern, right? It's not a kind of, to use a K and Abel example, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. No, you are your brother's keeper in stoicism or your sister's keeper in stoicism. But you also have to be aware whatever, you know, there are some things you can control because you can talk to them, you can guide them and support them, but you can't force them to think and act in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I think stoicism is very, very helpful in that, which I personally I don't find in nihilism. <laughs> I don't find in absurd, absurd kind of, or I find absurd philosophies. There are things in nihilism that I find very useful in the way of thinking about the human humankind, but it's not for me a step-by-step, how can I sequence this so that I can get an optimum result? Optimum not necessarily be making money, as the Silicon Valley would say it would be, but to get those people out of that fire, to, to help my team, to put myself in the mental state necessary to do my job. Right, and I love that you brought up negative visualization, or as the Stoics would call, a pre-mortem, because it does yes. help you to prepare not only for worst-case scenarios, which is a huge tactic in the fire service. What can go wrong will go wrong. So you prepare and take the actionable steps, but also it can remove the sting from you know tragedy mm-hmm. and you do meet adversity. Exactly, and I think people, unfortunately, who who want to find a stick to bash those and with, and there's a lot of them. I just did a rebuttal last week to say oh well appetizer says don't care about your loved one because he says you know remember you, that you no one is yours really and that one day like your favorite cup will break you will lose a loved one so it's better to prepare for that so that you're you know you can carry on and people have taken that to mean that that he's saying it doesn't matter that a cup and a person is the same thing absolutely not that's not what he's saying and that you know one day people will die so who cares and that's not the stoic point of view it's saying like one day the person I'm married to will die. So I should appreciate them. This is the other side of the coin, right? I should appreciate every moment I have with them. Like you and I must have got into arguments with our friends and family members. And you think, really? I, that, that person's only going to be on this planet for so long. Was the argument so important to continue being angry for the next three days? I'm not talking about the argument itself. But you know that you have that hurt feeling. You think, oh, that person, they, they hurt my feelings and I'm not going to talk to them. And you think they were only going to be alive for the next, you know, 50 years or 20 years or 10 days. And did I need to be angry for three extra days? And I think that's what Stoicism is saying, like appreciate and make sure you, you know, you tell the person, acknowledge that you appreciate them because one day you will not have that person in your life and you will have to continue without them. So that's why I want to distinguish that because it's not for me to say like, you know, don't care about your wife as a stoic, absolutely care about her and in caring about her, understand that it's a it's a finite space you're not going to have her forever 
so appreciate everything that she does and when she, you know you feel hurt by what she said to you remember that you're the, you are hurting yourself by taking you know what she said personally so that's uh, that's Marcus Aurelius so like you know not feeling harm because you recognize that she didn't really want to harm you if she's your wife I'm assuming right not in, it's not in her best interest to do so and it's not in your best interest to feel that way and so that's what stoicism is saying Bringing it back to, to, to the firefighting, I, I guess you've had colleagues that have, have had um, severe loss. And that's not to say that, that you know, we shouldn't acknowledge that loss and not give space to that loss. But there's a difference between giving space and being able to grieve that, through that loss than to be wallowing in some kind of, oh, my gosh, if I'd only done that, the shoulda, woulda, coulda, but couldn't. Mm-hmm. So Stone said, no, you can grieve and then there's space for that. And it's human to grieve and you should grieve and you should acknowledge that. But to continually beat yourself up about what you could have done, that is not stoic. That is not helpful. And it's not healthy because you're not progressing in a way that is good for your mental state. And it's not conducive to your happiness. I just thought I'd distinguish that. I know people get confused. And with that negative visualization is also one of the best ways to get over that hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill by meditating on your own impermanence and the impermanence of the ones that you love. Absolutely. I have to ask you a question, though. Like, could you give me, like, in the last, say, two weeks, I really would like to, to hear this, but uh, in the last two weeks, how have you used stoicism in your day-to-day, not necessarily in a fire, but your day-to-day, say, let's say, non-fire activities as a, as a firefighter? Mm-hmm. What, what have you, how, how have you used, used stoicism in a practical sense? Because I'd be really interested to know. Yeah, so two things that come to mind. I am a big fan of sleep. When it comes to sleeping at the firehouse, we take a lot of runs at night. When you're laying down trying to sleep, and all of a sudden you get jarred by these loud tones, and then you go on a run, right? Multiple times after midnight. It's pretty hard to not let emotions arise and to get the best of you. Those calls coming in after midnight, that's out of my control. What, can, what is in my control is the way that I respond. So how is my patient care going to be? Am I still going to be able to remain uh, empathetic, passionate about my mm-hmm. job? So that's, that's where the dichotomy of control comes in. And also, after runs, that's when I use that time to reflect. Because I don't think you learn from experience. You learn from reflecting on that experience. So oh, that's, that's when I learn say, and when say I that can again, do that. that's fantastic. Say that again, sorry, that was so good. This is probably taking this wisdom from someone else, but it's not that you learn from experiences themselves, but you learn from reflecting on those experiences. That's so good. I never thought about that way. Sorry, that's really, really useful. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that to provide for my students, but that's fantastic. You're absolutely, you're I stole it from right. someone else. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, we all, have, we all have wisdom in us just because you do that as your day job doesn't mean you're always the wisest. Right. And speaking of, Seneca was one of the first ones to always admit when he would steal from, you know, Epicurean. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, that's a good point to say that, you know, I'm not here to promote stoicism. It's the only way to to move forward in life. Right. I just think that it is very, very helpful in able to use at least some of the structures to sort of regulate you know, okay, if I know that I'm going to be grumpy because I'm tired, then I need to understand that's part of my role as a first responder right Mm -hmm. so i think again that stoicism would provide those tools and mechanisms i am against using stoicism only as a tourism mechanism like i'm against people swearing in portugal in english right it's the same thing like you have this whole beautiful language and you reduce it to that and if you have a whole beautiful philosophy and you reduce it to just the tools just so you can get ahead then i have an issue with that but if it's to sort of you know 
quieten your mind and recognize that as part of your job, you're going to be woken up. And so you have to be prepared for that. I think that's really important. I will correct one thing, actually. You said empathy in stoicism, and it's a real nuance here, but there is no empathy. It's sympathy, because empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes, which in a stoic sense, you can't literally do, right? You can't really know what the other person thinks. So in stoicism, I know in the generic sense of the, the word, I would use it as well. But if we're talking in the context of stoicism, there is no empathy. There is sympathy. So it's like, I'm not trying to be your feel how you feel, but I recognize that how you feel you is, is like this, and I'm going to respond to you how you would like to be treated. So that's kind of like a stoic spin on it. But I just wanted to, to, emphasize, to emphasize that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care, but empathy can be a little bit dangerous from the stoic perspective because then you start to try to be something you are, someone you're not, which is quite irrational. And then you try to, by putting yourself in that person's shoes, you start to feel as a human being, because it's, it's biological, you start to feel how they feel. And then you basically are taking on their emotions. Now that, that can be conscious or, or sort of like an unconscious uh, response. So for example, if somebody's crying, you might cry with them. Now some of that crying with them is because you really feel for them, that you cry for that. But some of it is just because you're so, you're so engaged in putting yourself in their shoes that you suddenly feel their kind of emotions. And then the stoicism says, hang on a minute, like, is that rational? Is that, is that helpful to that person? And oftentimes it's, I'm not going to say 100% because there's no rule in stoicism, but 100% other than you should always be virtuous, but that's not always uh, helpful. So I would encourage you, Nick, to be sympathetic rather than empathetic if you really want to progress in that way in stoicism. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just bring up an example, what would it look like if, you know, some paramedics showed up on scene of some crying family members and they all just started weeping along with them? Obviously, that detachment allows us to exactly. remain That's professional. I'm going to borrow that as well. Because we go, what, what does that exactly look like? And, but I think the paramedic example is actually very clear cut. You have to understand where that person's been injured and why they've been injured, or at least uh, understand pretty quickly through the questions you ask and from the way the person is looking. But to feel that, yeah, to feel that emotion would be completely absurd actually it would be unhelpful so that's where sympathetic is understanding how they're feeling and where they're coming from but not going to the point that you are linked with them emotionally in some way and that's in, that's easy, you know i mean there are you know there's not saying that you can't have a joint experience because you and i could both watch you know an american football game and you'd both be really enthralled by it but to be able to then step back and go okay i really enjoyed that but is it something that i should be completely emotionally attached to, to the point of like feeling like i'm a member of the team there i would probably say no and so um, no you can obviously celebrate the team and be very happy that they won the super bowl for example but to put, try to put yourself in the shoes to relate yourself to such an extent is why for example in the uk uh, and in portugal we have instances of hooliganism because people really believe that their football team is like a religion it's like everything that matters to them and we had the example a couple of years ago here in portugal where a team in porto won the league and porto would not uh, sorry won the cup and they wouldn't let them celebrate in the town square right because they said no this is porto is for porto fans only not a porto team that isn't porto and i'm like really like you couldn't even sympathize with them. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't even say if we'd have won it in banned from our own city center from celebrating, which is a very traditional European way of doing it. Like that's crazy. That to me 
it's crazy. And that's where they just they took empathy of this passion or this passion for what the team feels to a whole other level. And they use the word we, we did this and we won the cup. And I'm like, how can you say we really? If you think about it, you didn't do anything. You sat on the side, you might have bought a ticket. You might not have even bought a ticket to watch the game. And you still say we won the cup and people get really happy about 11 men or 15 men or 15 women's performance. You have to be careful with what you identify with. Exactly. And I think stoicism is, is one way of keeping those checks and it's not the only way, but I think it is a very helpful way of keeping those checks and balances in place. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier the whole having sympathy for people. We're all one brotherhood or sisterhood. What is your thoughts on cosmopolitanism? I think it's fundamental. Well, it's fundamental. Even if you didn't take a stoic stance, I think without it, we're lost. Uh, I use the American example uh, quite a lot, which is unfortunate at the moment that you have so much, um, you have a divide, a red and blue divide for one of a better phrase. And I don't think it's necessary because I think the American people do have a shared vision, they have a shared dream. We don't have that, you know, being British, we don't have that in the UK. There's no British dream, it doesn't exist. And I think the way that politics has unfortunately played out in the last, let's say it's not even the last two years, it's more or less like the last five, is that you either are blue or you're red, which is funny because it's a flag, right? Can't you be both blue and red? Like it's on your flag. So I think understanding that as an American, you have a role, right? So you have a role where you know, if you're a dad, you have a specific role to your children. And if you don't achieve that role, no one else is going to do that for you. So that that's fundamental that you look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself, no one else will. And if you've got to pick up your daughter from school, you've got to pick up your daughter from school because no one else is going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Then you've got family. But after that, which is where it gets really interesting from my point of view, from what the stuff I research is to understand that stoicism has no left or right. We are very political. People think, oh, no, we're, you know, I was having a discussion this morning about appetizers being against activism. Well, it depends what you mean by activism. But if you mean like standing up and talking and and discussing with people why things are incorrect, then no. And if you're talking about going on strike, uh, say for climate change, I don't think appetites would be against that. I think it'd be against prolonging it unnecessarily and using it to like as a means to activate other things, but to demonstrate where our obligations have been, you know, we have not been fulfilling them, I think he would stand up and say something. So the cosmopolitan attitude is really saying, okay, as American, as an American person, and I'm not one, but I can I can I can say I have a role in society, right? I care for others. I'm considered to others. I help. I, I help my neighbour. I, I, I'm tolerant of religious differences. I'm tolerant of free speech. Just two very American, very very American ways of thinking, and that requires that we find common ground. To be tolerant of people, literally, the word tolerance would, would involve some kind of middle ground somewhere. That doesn't mean we we let you know, everything happen, you know, all bars, everything is free to say, everyone's free to say whatever they want. No, but to understand, okay, I understand what they're saying that and I protect the freedom of speech, right? Or I understand why they, they act the way they do. And I am trying, as we're an immigrant nation, to to understand where all these cultures come in and become American. And I think that's the beauty of America, actually, that of very few countries can claim what you guys can claim of having the whole melting pot of society in, in one place. And if you can use that identity, which is definitely an American identity and not so much a British one, not so deeply entrenched historically, then you can say, I am, you know, as a, you know, a European immigrant American, like going way back or even one generation, I understand, say, Latin American struggle because my own grandfathers 
grandfather and grandmother had that that challenge and I can sympathize with that because the idea of like cosmopolitanism is to take the furthest ring from you and bring it onto yourself so that it becomes you so that you see yourself as the immigrant entering illegally say for want of a better word or informally and understand okay my grandparents or my great-grandparents they didn't enter illegally because there was no such thing as illegal but if they wanted to enter now they would be illegal i think that's part of the cosmopolitan sort of attitude to recognize the humanity and struggles of others but that doesn't mean that we should just allow anything to happen and everything goes no but to have some kind of compassion for their circumstances and the sympathy of saying this is a human being who is making even an economic decision which my own great-grandparents made right because they would for example the irish potato famine made an economic decision to migrate that's why america was formed it was generally not because of religious indifference uh, intolerance but because of economic challenges in europe so cosmopolitanism is recognizing that it is also recognizing that as an american you guys or you know if i were american i have specific obligations to my american people right mm -hmm. and i would say one of them might be to vote for say so i would like to vote to, because i value democracy in the u.s so if i'm american that might be something that's important to me it might be i'm going to appreciate every time like i see the flag and i'm going to pledge my allegiance because that's part of my identity right whereas as just a british person that's not something i could share it and that's not part of my obligation because that doesn't come under my identity but to if you say come uh, to my country and you need help I do have an obligation to understand like okay why is he here and how can I help him because I know now living in Portugal what it's like to be an immigrant because I'm an immigrant myself so that's the kind of cosmopolitan to find the humanity and what connects us and to bring that into a rational understanding of ourselves and others that's cosmopolitanism for me personally uh, and unfortunately that that vision is being diluted but I do think the American people have the ability to bring it back more so than anybody else if if you guys can just focus on the humanity of, of each other which at the moment we're not it's more like a how angry we are how disappointed we are and all these emotions that stoicism says okay you should really keep that in check why are you so angry why are you so emotional what is the bigger picture here so i don't know if that answers your question but please please ask me further questions if i didn't answer it where is this vision more important than with environmental issues and in, in politics I mean, absolutely. I mean, the environment issue is, is the, for me, the, the crux of it because we all have, we all have one atmosphere. <laughs> you, you can't claim as, a, as an American or a British person or whatever nationality you want to have on your passport or you'd like to apply for, you can't claim this, that you have a part of the atmosphere that I don't. You can't claim that your seas, I know we'll say, oh, well, these 12 miles of sea are my, you know, Nautic miles of sea are my sea, but generally speaking, you can't claim the current. You can't, it's a global system. And let's take the American example of uh, car ownership and the amount of fuel you burn through. You have to start saying, if everybody acts like the American car owner all of the time, then we will have no planet. So as an American, I have an obligation to reduce where possible the mileage. Now, that is not always possible. I've, I've stayed over in Jacksonville. I know how difficult that is. But things like meat eating, for example, we don't have enough land on this planet to support the meat eating of the average American, if everybody on the planet did that. So then it becomes a question of justice, but the four virtues, and one of them being justice. So if I cannot 
if other people say can not eat as much meat as I can because if everybody did that we'd run out of space like literally uh, why should I be allowed to eat that much meat could I not reduce it and then you start asking what do I value do I value fairness and I would say that the American people do value fairness outside of say Twitter battles I think American people are very fair and very considerate to each other and very courteous mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that's not something that we lose over the long term because I think that is fundamental to, to the continuation of of the planet. And unfortunately, the America and the Chinese elite, not the Chinese, but the Chinese elite, do have a specific obligation because of their carbon footprint, because of their environmental impact. So for me, understanding that we're all in it together, like even if you say, I don't believe in climate change, and there are a few Americans that say it to me, I'm like, like, but even if you don't believe in that, you do believe in air pollution, right? You do realize that your water is polluted, okay. And you do realize that, you know, people breathing in all that smoke and the chemicals that get put on the crops, which the cows then eat and then inefficiently convert that into meat that we, instead of just eating directly from the vegetation or from the crops, you do recognize that, right? And you do recognize that land is very important to you as an American, that the American dream is built on having your own piece of land. But imagine that everybody could have that. Then you need to sympathize and say, how can I, as a stoic, Believe in justice if I am allowing myself to have enti- feel entitled, it's not a stoic point of view at all, feel entitled to something that others cannot hope to have. And I think if we can do that, particularly in the US context of politics and the environment, the, the world will change. I mean, the American people were the world leaders in 1970 in environmental issues. The whole world was looking at America, literally. Mm-hmm. And it seems crazy that you guys who established basically the western point of view where, i mean it's not the only point of view but the western point of view how we manage the environment is an american model and you guys have forgotten it that's and it's it's and i always say to or often say remember your history and a lot of people say americans don't have history you do you have modern history you have a lot of really really interesting things rachel carson silent spring demonstrating issues with the way we, we farm or if we farm intensively so i think the american people have a lot of there's a lot of hope, and I think stoicism can help them go back into, okay, how can we communicate in a way that is decisive, that is intelligent, that is rational, and that is inclusive? Yeah. I, and I think that you have all the tools to do that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think the Stoics did not have the science that is available to us now. And as far as the argument goes for climate change and, you know, the abundance of animal consumption, um, I'm a firm believer in regenerative agriculture. These these farmers are now finding that when they raise pastured animals in an ethical manner, they're actually carbon negative. So I do think there's an argument for that, just as an aside. How can we live in accordance with nature instead of ruin nature while still understanding that we are apex predators at the top of the food chain? Yeah, and that's a fantastic question. I mean, in terms of the the, the food thing, I think it is more challenging. And so I, I don't, you know, as I, I wrote a piece on, should stoicism call us to be vegetarian, vegetarian? And the answer is not really. It is though to understand exactly where your meat came from, right? So I use the argument of like, I'm not asking like as a stoic, it's not stoic to say you should be vegetarian. That's, that's not, it depends, right? But the, the stoic argument to be vegetarian, if you had to, the alternative was to consume a meat where the cow couldn't leave a pen, right? If we want to say living according to nature is good, and then we do not let a cow live according to her own nature, right? Because we separate the calf completely from the mother, and we, we, we chain them up, for example. I, I don't think that's stoic. I, I, I fail to see if, if we do not give them space and, and some kind of 
joy in their own life, right? Then we can't really say we should live according to nature because then we're saying that we're more important than animals, which in, in, in stoic sense is true, except that the universe is actually the most important, right? So we're not at the top of the food chain and that's at the top of the chain of rationality is actually the universe. And that we are, as far as we're aware, the only animal that can mirror that. But the sage is the one that really does mirror. It's not really you and I, um, so neither of us are claiming to be the sage. So to say that, okay, well, you know, we are the top of the food chain, that's true, but that doesn't mean we're the top of the rational train. And the thing about applying the food chain is if we if a lion then eats you, then you say, well, he's top of the food chain, he has rights to eat me, right? So it's a bit difficult in a philosophical perspective to claim because we're top of the food chain that that we should uh, be able to do whatever we want or be able to eat a cow because of top because it's okay, if a lion eats us, why do we then kill the lion? Truly it's natural, right? So I think you have to be very careful about how you you go and I know you've been very nuanced and I completely agree if you can find a restorative way of doing agriculture that's absolutely fine unfortunately most of agriculture in the western world is not that way inclined at all mm. so I think that you have to start saying do I know where my meat comes from do I know where my cheese comes from do I know where anything comes from because a lot of people don't even know I'm like I know you mean the supermarket where do they source it from and I give the example of tuna like uh, if you talk about dolphin friendly tuna you only have to provide 2% of your catch as dolphin friendly to qualify for some of those labels. Wow. So, yeah, that's like saying like, I'm 98%, you know, human happiness, you know, uh, I'm 100% human happiness, only 2% of your workers are not slaves, right? Can you imagine the equivalent? I'm like, so if only 2% of your human workers were not slaves, could you really claim that you were, you were like human friendly, <laughs> that that was one of your priorities? And then I ask people, if you like tuna, I don't have the issue with that, but understand where that comes from and what happens to that dolphin, which incidentally is the most intelligent animal on earth except us, and far more intelligent than the chimpanzee, and yet we do not even know that. And as a stoic, you're actually called to uh, find wisdom, either through your, you know, through your own readings or talking to me, say, on environmental issues and talking to somebody else on, say, psychological ones, because I'm not an expert on psychology. But I can say that tuna is a, is a critical resource because dolphins are being destroyed in, in very unfriendly ways. And it's not necessary. There is such thing as sort of um, pole court and line court doesn't need the nets because what they do when they throw in the nets is they drag the dolphin onto the boat and the dolphin drowns in air. Mm-hmm. And they do it in a way that they trick the dolphin to play with the boat. So it's quite a vicious way of doing it. So I, I, I say to people, okay, if you're going to eat tuna, what do you know about tuna? If you're going to eat meat, what do you know about that meat? So it's not a one, it's not stoic to say you should eat a certain way. Absolutely not. But to be completely ignorant, which is a vice, a stoic vice, the opposite of wisdom, is absolutely not stoic. It's actually, I would say, like, it's the antithesis of stoicism to, to say, well, I prefer not to know. You know, you ask people, they go, I prefer not to know. Well, yeah, then that's not very stoic. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how much that answers your question. And I'm, I'm sorry to say there's no correct answer in that sense, unless that, you know, you have to sit there and go, is, you know, the way I answer, is, you know, killing dolphins in this way just? If I know there are ways to avoid it, right. if they exist, the answer to me is no, it's not just. Because I know ways to avoid it. And it is perfectly sustainable. <sighs> It doesn't destroy other uh, marine life. And the answer is, if you, then if you can't find a solution, which there are in the US, there are um, 
companies that really do mean what they say when they put the label on, when you check these labels and go, okay, now I've done my research, I know I can buy my tuna from this one place. And if that is not available because it's not available that day, then I won't eat tuna this week. I, I, I find that very in line with stoic principles. Absolutely. And in my eyes, I feel, you know, animals don't feel bad eating other animals. Where we differ from them is that we are we have the ability to use reason. So Correct. if I can use reason, then I should be able to be connected to the food that I eat and mindful and grateful mm. for for every meal. Exactly. And Rufus, um, Senius Rufus, who's, who is Epitaxis' teacher, says exactly that. That was the that was the term I've been looking for, mindful. Thank you very much, Dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be mindful of what we're eating. And I uh, made a case, it's not coming out just yet, uh, but we should be submitting it very soon, of how community gardening is a very stoic practice because it's being at one with nature. It's understanding seasons because we do not know seasons. Like Epitaxis talks about do not want to figure out seasons. These days, it's like, what do you mean out of season? That, that's not even a concept to us anymore, which is very sad. So it's like, okay, so I understand where my food comes from. I understand seasons. I understand how, I understand how pests works. I understand pesticides because I'm very careful not to spray it, you know, too much because it pollutes my water, which is a problem we have and we just continuously spray. And I'm building community. I don't think there's many more stoic examples of like a hobby, for want of a better word. Like, so community gardening is something very stoic in the sense that Mercedes Rufus did say we should be mindful about what we eat. We should eat what is simple and easy to obtain. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we should do it we do it respectfully and rever- in reverence of what nature provides. So not going against nature by extracting so much that because when we beat nature, it's like no, we didn't beat nature. We just made more space for us. Mm-hmm. We destroyed nature. And so because we have this like idea that we we rose above nature. You can't rise above the earth. You you live on earth unless you're going to live on Mars. I know Elon Musk wants to, but that's not quite scientifically proven yet. So we need to work in harmony and in tandem with those seasons. And I think a lot of people would do, and they just they just choose not to to think about these things because they know deep down that it's probably not what they want to see and read and hear. But I think as a Stoic, you have an obligation to do so. The same with politics, you have an obligation in politics to understand fact-checking, what is false news and what is not false news. And okay, so one particular party is saying this and the other party is saying that, what's the truth? And say, so, well, you might say, well, I'm a Republican, but I don't agree with this, mm-hmm. right? I don't have an issue with, I don't have an issue with something I'm saying, I'm, I'm Democrat, I'm a Republican or whatever. But so I don't agree with this particular statement. And I use the example, you know, Barack Obama is, is Democrat in the, in the US, but if he was in the UK, he'd be, a, he'd be a conservative. So he'd be on the right. He'd be quite, quite on the right, you know? He'd be happily on the right. He would not be left wing in the UK. So when we go, oh, he's so left. For us, he would be right wing. You know, that, that's, that's the, when you start digging into the facts, you start to realize this right and left thing is really relative. So if it's relative, it's not stoic because we deal with facts and rational, rational thinking and behavior. So I, I encourage Republicans and Democrats to think, and those who that, that do not uh, align with either, to think about the facts behind what is being presented, not the way that something is being presented, which I think is something that's being lost. So it's a hard thing to do, but it's a very stoic thing to do. Instead of pointing fingers and saying, I don't like Republicans, or I don't like Democrats, or I don't like conservatives, I think that's very anti-cosmopolitan and completely unnecessary. So what environmentally friendly changes can we make aside from agriculture and farming, you know, day to day that can have a lasting impact on our future generations to come and on the planet? I, I think uh, reading is it's fundamental, listening to podcasts to understand like 
what is the biggest problems out there, right? Because every person, I don't, for example, I chose not to drive because I didn't want to feel like a hypocrite when I spoke to my students, but I'm not asking people not to drive, right? But you have to be aware of what's going on so that you can make decisions every you know, week about what you're going to do. Food is an easy way to start because you're in complete control of that if you're an adult, not if you're a child, but if you're an adult, three times a day, right? So you can say, is it necessary for me to eat meat three times a day? Could I not eat eggs? Could I, could I not do something else? So that's one thing. A lot of people buy clothing, uh, fast fashion, you know, cheap fashion, throw away. There is no way. You're literally just throwing it into landfill or chucking it, as you found out in the US, you're throwing a lot of plastics into the, you know, South Southeast Asia. So to really look at the idea or the concept of throw away and realize that doesn't exist, you're just moving the problem. You're not throwing it away anywhere. So to say, do I really need this clothing? Do I really need these things? And I always say, you want to change the world, don't buy things you don't need. Mm -hmm. And if you have extra money and you would like to have a nice life of it, it's not to buy stuff, but to buy experiences that promote justice, self-control, wisdom, and courage, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm not saying don't spend. I'm not saying be like be completely frugal to the sense that you don't do anything, but be frugal with things. Because again, that's a very stoic point of view. Like, do you need these things? And enjoy that money. Like, for example, you can retire earlier if you don't need to feel the need to fill your house with little trinkets that are made by children in Brazil and China, for example. So I think the first thing is just to take a, you know, get an Excel sheet and work out exactly what you spend on a month basis. You know, few people do that. How much do I spend on food? How much do I spend on clothes? How much do I spend on uh, fuel or car or insurance? Okay, how much do I spend in the US on health? I know it's a big one, right? So there are things that you can't change. Your mortgage, your health would be one of them. And you might find out that you spend $200 every month on, on say, um, clothing. You like to buy a pair of jeans every month. You just didn't realize that you, that you only buy one pair, one t-shirt and one pair of jeans. You like to buy expensive and it's $250. Then you do research on those jeans that you buy and you realize, for example, that children still produce them. So you're literally just paying for the brand on your chest, right? Status. And you say, is that is that stoic? <laughs> to, surely I spend that money buying like fair trade or locally produced. There's a lot of really good American factories that do not employ uh, child labor and try to find a way to spend that money without reducing necessarily the things that you enjoy but reallocating so I'm really a fan of Excel sheets then once you've done that you only need to do it maybe once a month once one month every three months or once every six months in the end it'd be once a year because you'll be used to doing it and identifying those points of like pressure for you personally that obviously you could reduce but you don't want to and then understand why you feel the need to say buy clothing and why you feel the need to, to buy a status. And there's not an issue with status. It's only if I would say there's an injustice involved. And then reallocating that money. Because I'm not I'm not gonna sit there and say, you know, you should completely reduce what you spend. No, you should use your your purchasing power to enable others. Mm -hmm. Right. So you might find a local, you know, people say, oh, well, I'll drive to Walmart because it's easier. Yeah, but then you're missing out on the local shop. And that person, he now has to or she now has to move to a big city because no one bought the milk from her place. Right. Right. This kind of thing. So it's just looking around you and observing and processing and giving yourself some tools. And then it's building habits. So you've got the Excel sheet. You say, well, it's easy to go to Walmart because on my way to the gym, you know, on my way back from the gym, I passed the Walmart, right? Then you might think, is there another route? Can I not pass, you know, a different shop once every fortnight on my way back from the gym, right? Trying to work out your habits and how they feed into your decisions. Because if you don't understand how your habits work, 
you're going to just fall. It's just too easy to fall back into that regime, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very simple things like you know I, I not want people necessarily to go and try and save the world or go you know go and join a Greenpeace boat and like you know try to change the dolphin thing, but certainly think about how you buy tuna and tell people to do you know by the way did you know this and they go yeah I knew that okay then eat it <laughs> I don't have an issue with that but did you know uh, and just taking stock of what's important to you and your local community and how you can build your local community. And, and if people are arguing between like, the blue and the red side, go, well, really, if we just remove that and we look at the facts, what's important to us as Americans and finding commonalities? Because when you find commonalities and you build community, I think you act, you do reduce your environmental impact because you don't. You can borrow tools, for example. You can say, oh, you go to work as well in that direction. We can share, we can, we can car share. So I do think building relationships is fundamental to building a better environment and helping the the, the, the natural processes regenerate. Yeah, 100%. And I think the Stoics had a, a greater focus on the intrinsic values because, you know, spending is easy, signaling is easy, but doing mm. the internal work, the self-exploration and, and the personal growth is hard, but it's so much more rewarding in the long run. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it is difficult. That's one of the things that people are so used to, particularly in the West again, of doing things in the name of status to show off, right? Not in, not even like not even in a horrible way. Like I don't I don't think most people are saying oh, I want to show how wealthy I am by buying a hundred dollar polo shirt. I don't think they do that. But because they've never taken the time, because they've never been encouraged, because of the hedonic premier that you alluded to earlier, they don't take the time about what really matters. And I'm like, guys, you could retire at 45 if you didn't buy you know Direct TV, and you didn't buy like the the, the literal treadmill you have in the garage that you never use, right? So of joining the local running club and building, you know, helping helping people and recognizing there's a single mum down your street who really needs help with, with her furniture being fixed, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like just finding a way to that works with you because I'm not asking you to become a different person or empathize to a point that you become like, oh, I want to be like Kai. Now that would be awful. That'd be awful for you. But like what can Nick do like today and it's today what can you do and I'll ask you what can you do today Nick to say reduce your plastic that you buy like the packaging or reduce your you know intake of of, of goods that are not necessarily reasonable to other people on the, on the planet but that would be my question to you what could you do today because it's something about doing today and if you're a listener do something today and once a month check in again like am I still like doing that and I'll give you an example of what I did. So I want to know what you come up with, and then I'll give you one. Okay, yeah, and that reminds me, just to mention, is that James Clear Atomic Habits book, he just says, you know, get 1% better every day. So what can I do today to have 1% less of an impact on the environment or to decrease my footprint? And for me, that is something as simple as just I walk everywhere. If it's possible to walk there, I walk. Okay, but what are you going to do today to improve upon that? Not necessarily the walking, but that you don't. So I'll give you the example. Like... I suddenly realized that like small jars of stuff and like I kept buying like yogurt pots that were like just one serving. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds stupid, right? It's like, do I need to do that or can I not just buy a big yogurt pot? Right? That that's one example of reducing the amount of plastic, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, do I how much how many shampoos do I need to, you know, buy? Right? Can I not just like instead of having three or four now, I've got okay, well, I want this one and I'm gonna buy a bigger one, like a bigger Lots so instead of having three small bottles of different shampoos, having one, and that sounds really silly. But it's, until I started doing my Excel sheet, 
and thinking, actually, I don't, I don't really need to have three different shampoos in the house, right? I just need the one. And I can just buy a bigger bowl. Go, well, that one's nice. So it's something, I mean, something really, really simple that you had never thought about before, like, because you just got into the habit. So that was one that I, I did. Uh, and I was just, just looking at, I actually did like a little auditing of how much plastic I bought and said, do I, do I need to do this? Like, and then I changed a bit of habit. So this is another one. This is a recent. There was like a can of beans that from Heinz, which is something in the UK. And I was like, can't I make, if I buy the beans in like a bigger, like a, just the beans itself rather than the mix, with you know, the tomato sauce and the sweet corn and the Mexican tasting thing. If I make my own batch, right? I reduce the can and it's healthier and I actually, instead of buying, and it's cheaper. So that was something that I had to do because I was like, I spent like, because I had to import it, right? So imagine the the food mile, the carbon involved in that. And so literally I could make my own beans and I don't really, if I make a big enough batch, the time I save by just throwing, you know, the small amount of beans into a saucepan, I saved. So I don't need necessarily asking you, you know, anybody listening out there to make a big change. And we're la- I'm laughing because I'm giving silly examples, but it was something I just overlooked. This is my job, right? Mm-hmm. So I asked you again, like, what could you do today that, or think about? What, what would you, if I said you've got to do one thing and you've got to sh- measure, it's got to be measurable, you've got to show me it, what would it be? Yeah, that's a really good question. If there was one thing that I could do today to be better as far as more cognizant of my decisions that impact my environment? Yeah. <clears throat> You know, it's so silly, but it's the little things. The, you know, what comes to mind is I don't need to have the water running the entire time I'm shaving and be wasteful. I don't need to have the water running the entire time I'm brushing my teeth. There you go. And yeah, you might, I'm not saying you never have it for a minute because there are days where you really do need, you know, some more time. But certainly thinking about the taps that you leave running, like when you wash your car, like how often do you leave the hose just running? Mm-hmm. Like, and California's having, a, I mean, I know you're not there, but you think of the issues they're having. And it's just like, yeah, how many times do you leave the hose pipe running? Uh, is that necessary? Like those kind of those kind of things. So it, it literally, just basically, there's nothing you can do is go through an itinerary of your day or f- and go, wait a minute, you know, I literally left the tap running the whole time. Or, you know, I didn't really, or when I wash my hands, I, I use so much water. And I was like, do I really need to? And then I, and I dry my hands and then I turn the tap off. Why do I turn the tap off before I dry my hands? And people do that as well. And it's not to, to pass judgment. Like I said, like I imported a can of beans. And I thought, really, I don't really need to do that. And I've saved a lot of money. It was ridiculous. Uh, but to ask yourself those questions, like, what is it I can, that I can do? to save money, really, if you take it even from a money perspective, like, it's amazing that you can go, I actually saved $20 a month because I just realized that I didn't need to do it. Yeah, and another thing so, you can do is just turn off the autopilot, mm. be aware, be mindful, and stop being such a sleepwalker. Well, that's a very stoic piece of advice, and it is also, as you say, a James Clear advice. Like, if we, that's what the philosophy, you know, to bring it back full circle is, it's not about not caring, it's about recalibrating the way you think, the way you act, right? And the way you respond to other people and other things. So socialism is literally being mindful of one's decisions day by day and how they relate to justice, self-control, wisdom and courage. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes courage to tell people, actually, I, I know that you're, you know, you're Republican, but you don't have to hate the Democrats. They are people. Like, and I know you're Democrat, but you don't have to put every Republican you know stupid. Like. And, and finding means and ways to do that. And that takes a lot of courage, really. That takes, it's easy for me to say the British person because they know that I'm going to say that. But it takes courage, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it takes courage to stand up against that. It takes self-control to be like, oh my gosh, I've left the tap on for like the last four months, you know, 30 years of my life. I didn't even realize that. Or, you know, I, I left the gas running on the, you know, in the car because I was a bit cold that morning. So I just left it running. And I was talking to my friend in the car. A lot of people do this. I don't know if you've ever done it. I've done it myself. But you're sitting in a car and your friend's talking to you with the music because they want the music on. They're leaving the car running. Like, is the music that important in this conversation? Mm. <laughs> Couldn't we just turn the car off? <laughs> right. Oh, but the air conditioning. Well, then go and sit in the bar and, and sit because the air conditioning's on there anyway. Like, these kind of things. And that, that stirs them to me to day by day, 1% better. Yeah, it's time to wake up. So switching gears here, how would your version of the Republic differ from Zeno's or, say, of Plato's? That is a really tough question. Uh, it's answer for Plato because I am not a particular fan. I don't see myself as the philosopher king, right, which is why it was more successful, I would argue, uh, for the church because they saw themselves as being the philosopher the king. I think with, with Zeno's, it would differ because he says, like, there is no money, so I would think he said there's no need for money that you have to you can just trade. I think on a global scale that's not very easy. So in my in my republic I definitely have money in it, uh, but I would stick with his view that money wasn't the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. But he literally says there's no there's and he, he says there's no temples right there's no religion there's no church. So I don't think I would like remove churches or mosques from the republic. I think actually if people find some comfort in those places, that's fine. Like. Who am I to tell other people, you don't need a temple? I understand why he said that, because he's got his nature, right? I mean, if being out in nature, which a lot of us are not doing very much, we don't need the temple. So I wouldn't be so restrictive about what temple we have or, or not. And he says that women and men should wear the same clothing. So I think there is something to be said by that. But I also recognize that part of our happiness is the ability to express ourselves as long as it's through the four virtues. So I'm not entirely sure that men and women would wear the same clothes. I don't know if that would be very, you know, everybody would basically wear the same clothes. I'm not sure how helpful that would be for the people's identity because I think clothing is is part of one's identity, at least today. Obviously, if I, if I could turn the clock back, maybe I'd be like, yeah, we'd remove all that. But I think it would be different in that sense. And I think we would really focus more on what we could do for each other, which Zeno did, but unfortunately... The powers that be uh, didn't really appreciate his point of view, so a lot of it went missing. So it's very hard for me to say whether you know it would be the same as his. Not he is much more into anarchy. Not in the anarchy is in the complete chaos, but the idea that we were completely responsible for our own selves. That kind of anarchy, not the not the word we use to display uh, lawlessness. He's not against lawlessness in the, in that sense. He's lawlessness because he says there's no need for laws if we all act towards virtue. So, yeah, I guess in that sense, I'd like to have a world that we didn't have laws. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't have traffic lights. Oh, you mean we have no traffic lights? No, because that's something to do with virtue. But why, why do we have laws to say don't steal if we know we shouldn't steal, if we know there's no virtue in stealing it? And if I stole a bicycle from you, Nick, it's because I needed it to get somewhere quick. Mm-hmm. And I would always bring it back to you, right? So, yeah, in my, in my utopia, there would be no laws in that sense that to, prevent, to prevent people from, say, stealing because you'd only steal for real need and you'd bring it back or you'd pay it back. So I think we would, we would we would join there, but yeah, for Plato, for me, I just see I just it's just not my sort of cup of tea. But I recognise obviously it was very important historically. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm hoping that answers your question. How would you see it? I don't know how would you how would you have your utopia? What would make more sense is a world built on principles instead of rules or laws. Mm. But it's it's a little naive and maybe unrealistic. 
I think, yeah, I think so. But uh, in a utopia, you know, in an ideal situation, if we all go for virtue, then we would. But we have to remember that Dino's utopia is a, is, is a city of sages. So, yeah, it's a bit difficult. But I, I do believe that if we can negotiate space where we look at principles, so why, for example, certain legislation that's been brought in recently is not good for the American people. If we could do that, if we could have an intelligent conversation on gun law, because I'm not anti-gun, by the way. I am anti the way that the gun law has been discussed. I think it's unhelpful. So like, oh, so you're not anti-gun. No, depends how you use it. Canada doesn't have issues. <laughs> so yeah, I think of having an intent discussion instead of a heated debate. So I would center the discussion on like, we really need to make sure there is gun control so that children cannot get it. And then people say, well, that's already the situation. It's like, well, it's not, is it? Because children can get those guns, right? Yeah. So if it was already a situation, we wouldn't even be having this debate. So I would, I would be like, okay, how do we find a mechanism where we can all sit down and we can still have our guns if we need to have our guns, but we can have a very intelligent conversation about the restrictions that are necessary for all that, yeah. right? That is what I would really like. So a lot of people want me to come out and say, I'm against guns. No, I'm not against guns. I'm not for guns. I'm not against guns. They're just tools, right? But the legislation and the interests that govern that is what I have a problem with. And I would say even people who are pro-guns, which I'm not, are against some of the interests yeah, that are being being promoted. And I think that we need to have a very honest conversation in, in America about interests and say, if it was a cosmopolitan interest, if we remove the interests that are currently there, we don't need to discuss them or give them credibility, but how would we have a different conversation about gun control? Right? So I, th I think that's sort of the way our utopia is, is looking. Yeah, and I think the way that mine would differ from Zeno's is when even most of the Stoics will say none of us will achieve that the life of a sage, but we can strive to be like the sage. So as long as we are students of some form of philosophy that resonates with you and gives you a better understanding of virtue. Absolutely. Yeah. So of the Stoics, who resonated with you the most? Well, different people for different reasons. I don't have, My favorite Stoic is Zeno because I think he's the most misunderstood. And I think if we focused on him more, we wouldn't have the sort of Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley stoicism of using stoicism to better ourselves financially. Mm -hmm. I think it would be about bettering our society. And I think it would be, again, what we discussed about living according to principles. Zeno was very much into principles. But I also liked Spherus. Spherus was the first stoic. He was like the Jonah of the stoics, like Jonah goes out and he preaches to Nineveh. Uh, Spirits was like a kind of journey since he was the first Stoic to go out and preach the word for one of a better phrase. And he is the one who's, who went to Sparta and helped the Spartan king, Cleomenes III, bring a virtuous system back into Sparta, which actually reduced that, uh, resulted in land reform and treated immigrants uh, or integrated immigrants better as citizens. And people think, no, Stoicism is only for personal use. I'm like, really? Do you know anything about Sparta? And people go, well, Spartan, Stoic. I'm like, why do you think we have this connection between Spartan and Stoicism? Oh, is it not because Theorists went there and showed how we could use Stoicism on a collective level to bring down debt, to reduce inequality, to cut the greed? Because he thought the King Cleomenes was very worried about greed because he thought it made people bad soldiers. <laughs> so, yeah, he's responsible for the agog, so the, the educational systems that the Romans even took on is because of Stoicism. That is a clear-cut case of where Stoicism was used for political reform, 
mm-hmm. started by a king. I'm not saying the king was amazing, it wasn't, but that's what he was like. Him and his wife were very fundamental in bringing Stoicism to Sparta. And yet in Stoicism, we don't even talk about it. Really, we don't even discuss it. We just say Sparta's Stoic, as in being a strong brute somewhere, would be Stoic. That's not the case. The idea was that you'd be a good soldier because you wouldn't be your, you wouldn't act just in line with yourself, but you'd be the collective because you would want to be a good citizen. So Spheris was not just teaching you to be a good soldier, because arguably Sparta wasn't, Spartans weren't the best soldiers. I think the Mongols were probably better soldiers. But in terms of like bringing the collective spirit, the community, it's like, I don't want you just to be a good soldier, if that means a good killing machine. I want you to be a good citizen, so that if you are soldiering, you're doing it for the oneness and the benefit of the community. And I'm not playing, you know, whitewashing Sparta as some kind of wonderful utopia either. There were some issues, but they certainly gave greater equality to women than a lot of other places. Women had rights to inherit property. Women had rights to be soldiers. Women had rights to 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 rule in their own in their own right. Mm-hmm. And, and people forget that. So I'm not trying to say Sparta was ideal because it wasn't. There was a lot of uh, xenophobia. It wasn't racism because racism didn't, race does not exist in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So it's really strange when they say about, you know, we talk about, oh, well, in Rome, there was no black people. That's not true. There were. And they just didn't see it that way because we just didn't have that concept. That's a really modern concept, unfortunately, in the sense that people misunderstand race completely. And it's not even it's not even a thing <laughs> for most of human society. We need to remove that completely. But they were very xenophobic. They were very xenophobic. Same as Aristotle, in the sense that only Athenians were useful. So, yeah, I'm not painting a beautiful picture of, of Sparta. I'm just saying there's something to be land here and ignoring the significance of stirs for sparta in the collective sense rather than just the personal sense is is for me it's it's ridiculous it's, it's ridiculous it's absurd and unfortunate and i think if people did more research about sparta and stirism they'd actually be really amazed they wouldn't keep having an argument with me academically or otherwise or on facebook saying are we you know you're trying to apply stirism to something that it wasn't supposed to be applied to or you're supposed to be about political issues it was never political really really did you do your research and normally people go, I didn't know anything about that. Well, okay. But it is something very interesting. And I encourage all the all of you guys who are listening to go and really read up on stories of the Sparta. Uh, I can I will send you a, a book link so that Nick, you can put the information on 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 the on the website or where you need or on Twitter, wherever you need to put it. But it's worth it is worth researching. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. So is there anything else that concerns you about this resurgence of stoicism? I think just the main thing is the individualistic attitude about how I would use it to benefit myself. Like we had the argument recently about Stoics wouldn't care about gender inequality. I'm like, what? <laughs> Again, without talking even about Sparta, which I kind of tried to address things like that. It's like, how would, you know, firstly they'll say it doesn't exist and they'll talk about various mechanisms we can use to test it. And I say, look, at the end of the day, do we treat men and women in the workplace the same? If a woman is very loud and opinionated, we don't praise that woman. We say, oh, she's a bit, loud we use harsher words for that when a man does that he seems a leader so inherently our double standards which is what Zeno is trying to reduce by saying we should wear the same clothing is that you know do we treat women and men the same in the workplace but the answer is no and I'm not saying we should force people to treat them the same but recognizing that we don't means that we can put in mechanisms and go well why do we think that she is particularly uh, dislikable and we think that a person doing exactly the same thing as a man is likable. That is what we should challenge, not necessarily how, because you treat people 
when you know women and men we do treat differently and i'm not suggesting really everybody should be the same because we can't treat everybody the same that's not even stoic but to recognize where we are not treating people fairly now that is something that needs to be done and in stoicism at the moment in the modern not in the academic sense because that's not the case for the, my fellow academic philosophers but in sort of the armchair philosophers that i talk to that's something that they're having an issue with i'm like really no like if you can recognize any form of injustice or potential of injustice, then you need to do something about it. So I think as Stoics, we need we need to grow up from being baby Stoics, like just milk, you know, we'll just drink a little bit of milk that we get given to really going on to solids, to really biting hard, you know, on the information, thinking for ourselves, like, what does this mean? Am I saying that gender inequality exists in every single company? No. Am I saying that there's work to be done? Yes. Am I saying that we need to check our biases? Absolutely. Mm. Same with, with, with anything that we might have about, oh, well, these kind of people, you know, they, they tend to be lazy. We, we say that. I mean, British people, we say that about Americans, right? But you're acknowledging that we say that. Okay, so actually, that's incorrect. That's something that I've learned. And acknowledging that and ensuring that when an American comes to, you know, to work with me, that I don't have that bias. That's not easy to do, right? Because mm. it's not... It's, it's like the Connolly thing, right? Oh, well, you know, what about Connollys? Which is, that's where it's come from. But recognizing that and rectifying that, taking steps to be like, no, right, I could well have this bias against Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something my culture does, not not in a horrible way, like in a funny way, but then you do, don't realize where where it's a joke. It becomes into your, grained into your thinking. So I think there's something that is fundamental that we're not doing and say obstacle in the way doesn't do when it talks about, for example, uh, men being strong and being great leaders. But the two men they use who are of color, uh, to use an American phrase, uh, would are people that are in prison. One of them being uh, Nelson Mandela. So there's no person of color in obstacle in the way that is not in prison. Now, I'm not saying that Ryan Holiday did that on purpose, of course not. He's actually a very interesting and very intelligent guy, very kind of his time. But that's something that he has to, in my opinion, acknowledge. Mm. And then say, well, it's not so easy being a non-white person to lead. And you have so much more against you. Mm. And I think, you know, even as a first responder, you might say, well, how many people how many people with me are non-white men and the answer might be very few so next time a woman like applies i'm not saying you just say oh, we're going to definitely let her in because she's a woman no but you acknowledge the fact that to get to where she got she had to struggle more than you did quite probably and that she needs some kind of acknowledgement for that and that's not easy because people don't like giving away their privileges but i don't want stoicism to become which it has become unfortunately a little bit a bit of a privileged kind of oh, well, you're white and you're middle class, it's okay for you. And I spend a lot of my time saying, I know why you're saying that. I know where the direction has gone, but that's not stoicism. So that's kind of like my my role, I think. Mm-hmm. What I can give back to the community is to give people space to say something that doesn't align with the white middle class male perspective, which is unfortunate because I am the white middle class male. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to give space, but I'm very aware that I'm not the best spokesperson to do this. Unfortunately, in a sense, I'm the only person allowed to do it. I use that term loosely because when women try to do it on Facebook, for example, they get shouted down. Mm-hmm. 
So we really need to work on that. And just to give you an example, women wrote to me after Stoicon and they said, finally, we have a Stoicism that we relate to. And I was like, this is Zeno Stoicism. And people said, well, why don't women stand up? And I said, because we give them no space. If we give them space, it means talking about the issues that matter to them and, and giving them space to, on their own terms, say what they need to say. And we're not doing that as a community. We're, we're saying they could talk if they want to, but we're doing it on our terms and that's not giving someone space. Mm-hmm. That's my major concern, I would say. Absolutely. And the only thing I would add to that with Stoicism becoming popular again is, and for any philosophy, is it's not something that you go around preaching and telling people about and signaling that you know. It's something that you embody. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, and that, that's great. I'm hoping you put that on the on the, the cuts of the podcast because I think that's absolutely fundamental. So to give an example, when we say it's beyond our control, there are men who claim to be Stoics insulting women and then saying, well, you shouldn't feel insulted. Mm-hmm. Not they shouldn't insult. And we haven't got a, we haven't got any rights in Stoicism. We've got a few rights. So if I'm sitting in your chair, right, I'm only sitting in your chair if you were sitting there and then basically I tried to either sit on you or as soon as you get up, I sit in your chair. You have a right to get that chair back, right? right. But in Stoicism, we don't have rights. We have obligations. So my issue with rights is that it is powerful people who have rights giving, quote, unquote, weaker people, weaker in the political sense, not in the personal sense, weaker, weaker people the opportunity to obtain something they didn't already have. So that's still putting the emphasis on the fact that there are vulnerable people, either for the historic point of view of obligations, because the more powerful you are, the greater your sense of obligation, the greater responsibility you have. Now, if we turn things around in the political sense and did like Zena said, no, it's not about rights, it's about obligations, then you and I as white men have more obligations to do something than a, a, a non-white woman of color. Mm-hmm. Because we're in we're in a position of power and we need to reflect on that and provide space. And then when she comes with us, same thing. Because we're talking about rights, we're doing like quotas, like they have a right to speak. We're basically saying, oh, we give up our right to speak. And then people have an issue because they say, oh, my privileges are gone. Now, if we, instead of thinking about privileges, change it to, no, you don't have privileges, you have obligations. So stop all these privileges and self-entitlement and start thinking about and grappling with obligations. The world would be a fairer place. It'd have to be. Because the wealthier you are, the more obligations you have. Instead of what we're doing at the moment, where we're saying, "Oh, well, I feel privileged, and I don't want to pay my taxes, so I'm just going to put my money in a, you know, in a in a place that no one's going to know that I didn't quite pay my taxes. Well, I paid them, but I found a loophole. And it's like, well, okay, you found a loophole, so legally you have a right to do that. But in terms of obligations, you didn't really fulfill them, did you? So I think that would be one way. If I could do, like, switch my fingers and change the way we talk about things, it would be obligations rather than rights. Definitely. So switching gears here, Kai, you journal regularly and make your content available to the public. What impact does this openness have on your writing and what you're willing to share? None. None at all. Because uh, I think I'd be hypocritical. But I do know, I do know other people. um, I don't have tenor, for example. And a lot of people who are untenored won't say the things I say. So they won't have a discussion saying, well, I'm not anti-gun control, I'm not pro-gun control. They won't say that. Uh, but to me, if I was to tell you something different, you'd know. You'd know I was insincere, right? Mm-hmm. I just feel that you would. And even if you didn't, my obligation is to, to be honest and and be corrected. How am I ever going to be hoped to be corrected if I hide behind some kind of PC correctness, right? like political wreck gone crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And and people and people generally, uh, academics, they find it refreshing. They find it strange. They say, oh, I wouldn't have said that. Well, okay, you wouldn't have said that. But 
I'm saying, and the reasons I'm saying, if you misquote me and go, if you just cut sort of the, the podcast and go, well, I'm not against, you know, gun control. If you cut that, it would make me look really bad, right? But if you look through the context and go, well, actually, in the context is that he wasn't pro or against, and he gave his reasons for it, and still said we have to have an intelligent conversation. I think that's why academics are too frightened to say something, because in case they get misquoted, right? Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the day, you must also know that if you're a firefighter you're going to go and face fires if you're an academic you do your job properly people should be pretty irritated with you on some level because otherwise you're not even thinking if you're just saying what is safe you're not pushing people forward and i think that that gives me the opportunity to call people out and say well you know i've been able to to stand with the most right-wing uh conservative american and say but we're on the same side do you know what i mean they people said to me how did you manage to like diffuse that situation I'm saying, well, because I'm, I'm appealing to his humanity. I'm appealing to the fact that we're on the same side. And the rebuttal that I did uh, to a philosopher, she, we're going to have a conversation actually this weekend because she said that socialism was useless and we didn't care about anybody. And I appealed to her and said, actually, if you care about the environment, we're on the same side. That doesn't mean that I'm on the side of any, everybody. That if people really want to watch the world better, now I'm not on your side at all. But just because you're a Republican or just because you're a Democrat or just because you're something else, that doesn't mean that you're not on my side. I find a, a mechanism to say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I think we believe the same thing. We have some disagreements, but I think fundamentally we, we agree and being able to turn things around. So I think that's why I've enjoyed, say, for example, traditional Stoics have enjoyed my company and the atheistic Stoics have enjoyed my company and the left-wing Stoics have enjoyed my company and the right-wing Stoics have enjoyed my company because I think that my main claim is we're all Stoic so we're on the same side if we really are sincere in our practice. And the only time I'm, I'm, I'm really against people is when they claim to be stoic and then, they, and then they're not sincere in their practice. So they're, they're abusive to others and then I don't tolerate that. But other than that, I have, a, I have a calling, I have an obligation to be honest. So yeah, it doesn't change anything. And that's so, so important is your values align most of the time. It's just, or your mission, it's just how you get there might be a little bit different. And that's something that's great to explore together. Thank you. Yeah. So just a few more questions for you. I would imagine living in Portugal, you're close proximity to nature. How do you take advantage of living in such a beautiful country? And talk to me about how this gives you perspective. I think having lived in different countries, I've lived in the seven since I last came. It gives you perspective of the cosmopolitan thing. So it gives you perspective of different types of like environments outside. And and so so is the same thing can be said for the social environment. So, yeah, I take advantage. But I couldn't give you something specific about about. Portugal, but I do have an understanding how I lived in China, like a whole different way of thinking and a whole different way of viewing what the environment is, which is why I said often in this podcast, the Western point of view, and having lived in the Middle East, and he, you know, having heard the Adan being called Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, five times a day, I've really seen that. So I think that that gives me perspective, not being in Portugal per se, but being literally a citizen of the world. Something that I do feel I have particular implications to this country. So I often say if my country is in the UK went to war with Portugal, I think I'd have to defend Portugal, you know, if the UK was wrong in what they decided to do, because this is my this is this is the obligation I have right now. Right? I think I'd have to be on the Portuguese side. And people find that really weird. I'm like, why would I claim some loyalty if my country tried to destroy another for no no rational reason no no good reason? or at least valid reason, good is a difficult word to say with war, but a, a valid reason. And so, yeah, I think that, that that's a perspective I get, but it's not really an environment because I just sort of understand more of a global outlook. 
If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? I think I would be my grandma. So it wouldn't be somebody that was famous. It wouldn't be somebody that um, did something amazing. Like, <laughs> I think I would just have a conversation with my grandma, actually. I wouldn't pick anybody from history. I think probably because I'd be disappointed. Like I'd have some image in my head that wasn't realistic. And I'd think, say, for example, that let's say George Washington was a really interesting character. And then because we're like 200 years different, we'd have really different views. I might find him really sexist, I don't know. So I'd rather probably just talk to her because I'd have a really nice conversation and I'd really enjoy it rather than hope that the person I picked was a nice person. Awesome. What are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always get done. Yeah, that was a really good question that you asked me. I've been thinking about it for like, what, three weeks now. I don't have any. That's terrible, isn't it? Like if you said, do you brush your teeth every day? Well, there's some days that I don't because some days I forgot to pack my toothbrush when I go around. So I don't have any non-negotiables other than I would, if I had to say something, it's really try to be kind, mm-hmm. like be kind. Cause I, you know, we say like we should love one another. Sometimes it's really hard to love people. Like if, you, if you're depressed or if you know anybody that's depressed, like loving yourself is like really, really hard. Mm-hmm. But being kind to yourself is so much easier. So I think also love is a very difficult concept for some people. But I think if you said to someone, be kind, and you, were, you know, it's quite obvious when you're being unkind, where it's not always obvious when you love someone, because being, loving someone can be quite difficult because you have to be really harsh with them. And you think, oh, that's not very loving. But actually, if it's being kind, so my non-negotiable would be, would be be kind to people, like be kind to you, give you space, Nick, to talk to me about these things. And I sort of being like an academic, like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you because you're not an academic. And I have come across a fair few of those. So I think be kind. But in terms of actual like brushing one's teeth or doing exercise, I do all those things normally. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't say it was non-negotiable because I think in Stoicism, the only non-negotiables are the four virtues. Uh, I, I love that answer. A kind person is my kind of person. So any parting words for my listeners, Kai? I just wanted to say to you guys, thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or you need any clarification, then I'm I'm available uh, on Twitter and I'm available on Facebook. So I'll leave some information with Nick so you can get hold of me. Otherwise, at stokehigh.com, you can leave me an email there. Please don't hesitate to to ask a question. Just be very specific with the question because if you give me an open-ended one, it takes me hours to respond. But if you have a very specific question, I'm very happy to answer. And I really do hope that you think of one thing you do today, not tomorrow, today, that changes either somebody's you know, situation in the community, uh, helps the environment, or helps you change your perspective on what you are personally doing. But do something. Do something. So where should people go to learn more about you and uh, keep up with what you're doing? I mean, the easiest place if you're a Twitter person is at Kai Whiting, and then the website stokai.com. Or one of the Stoic groups, uh, that's also helpful. But for now, I, I think Twitter would probably be, if, if you just want to dip in and dip out. Otherwise, I do have a newsletter. So if you really are interested in my work, then that is where you should go, strikekai.com. I'm really grateful that I came across your work, Kai, and thank you so much for sitting down and having a conversation with me. You're very welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review following me on social media at Prime Philosophy and just by spreading the word, Jacoba.